It's the Rural Radio Network and the Midday Program. Welcome to it here for Wednesday as we head into what's going to be another very, very hot one. Wherever you are, probably it's going to be exacerbated a little bit by the fact we've got a lot of humidity and that is going to make things feel even warmer than they are. So take the proper precautions for you and all the things you have, all the cattle you have, your animals. It's very important. Folks need to use that app that Jesse was talking about yesterday. Thank you. Today would be a good day for it. Yep. Invoke the app, and yep, the then you can go home. And, app. That's right. You can go home and watch TV. Well, that's not quite how it works, Jerk. <laughs> well, it's a lot of work for everybody, app or no app. That's Let's right. move on over to Jesse and find out what's going on in Ag today. And if you missed that interview yesterday, all the information is at RollRadio.com. Mm-hmm. But for today, coming up at the 1213, we will talk about the latest Nebraska trade mission. They will be going to Canada in August, and so that's Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts, along with the Department of Economic Development and the Nebraska Department of Agriculture. Also, we will talk about E15 promotional events. For the 1219, Shaley Peters is joined with Russ Callen. He is Assistant General manager with the Lower Loop NRD discussing a cover crop groundwater impact study that they are kicking off with the Central Platte NRD this fall. For the newsmaker, I am joined with David Hogg. He is the Assistant Emergency Manager Coordinator with the Kansas Department of Agriculture, and they are starting up a Kansas Emergency Response Corps. And so that Corps is for uh, a, to have a list of people who are going to volunteer their time to go through some training. But if there's an agriculture event and they need help, whether that's wildfires that we've had in Kansas the past couple of years, if it's an outbreak of some disease, they have this group of people who can then go help with cleanup or building new fence, different things like that. So we'll talk about this new core that they are starting. And then for the 117, I'm joined with uh, Gerald Theus. He is the department the deputy regional director with the U.S. Wheat Associates. He's located in South Africa, and he has a trade team made up of Nigerians and South Africans that were here in Nebraska, and they have now moved to Kansas, and they're looking at the wheat. They'll also be going to Oklahoma, North Dakota, and Minnesota as well okay. during their trade team. So we'll talk about what they're looking at, what they're doing. Look forward to all of that. All right, Jason Jorgensen has the sports. Busy day of news in Husker football yesterday, which in the middle of June is not good. <laughs> and uh, it just isn't. It all depends. Yeah. So, I, I guess it can't be good news then. No. Uh, usually not. Uh, the big news yesterday, true freshman wide receiver Keyshawn Johnson Jr., after he uh, ran into trouble with the law earlier this uh, month, his dad, Keyshawn Sr., is taking him back to California. Uh, the, the junior will not be around this fall to play football for the Huskers. Uh, he and his dad say he hopes to rejoin the program in January. We will see. College World Series continues on tonight with one elimination game at 6. A couple of heavyweights will duke it out as Florida State will play LSU. And the Colorado Rockies continue to roll on. Another victory last night. 21 games over 500. No kidding. But they only have a half game lead in their division. So they need to keep it up. Yeah. Strong division. Mm-hmm. All right, Bob, what do you have in business? Wall Street is kind of you know, going a little bit this way and a little bit that way. Home sales rose in May. We've hit a new low for oil prices for this year, and so folks are watching that. And uh, also, fidget spinners have been named among possible summer hazards for kids. I guess I'm going to have to <laughs> turn mine in. My fidget, my fidget spinner was a hammer. <laughs> 
That was oh. back in the low-tech days. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, I think they outlawed that eventually, Bob. Thanks. That's all coming up for you today on Midday. Paul Brickin steps in with a look at ag weather today, and the word for the day is heat and humidity. Yes, especially in the central and eastern sections. It's already heat in Ogallala, but it's more of a dry heat out there. Okay. <laughs> it is, seriously. Really? There. Seriously? Yeah. Okay. I would think that that, <laughs> that, uh, that that Big Mac would be sitting there like a big tea kettle ready to explode. Yeah, people starting to use it to refresh out there. Yeah, hopefully it doesn't so. boil over too much. But yep. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, your uh, ag information brought to you by Kuhlman Repair. We do have a temperature of 98 right now at Ogallala already, but their dew point and humidity very low. The humidity at 17%, their dew point at 46, so that 98-degree temperature, I guess, actually still feels like about 98. Sometimes that lower humidity will actually make it feel a lot lower. It's already up to 90 in McCook, 95 at Thedford, but once again, towards the Thedford area, also less humidity, but that is not the case as you do head into central and east areas of Nebraska. Temperatures already into the upper 80s, and that is making it feel up to around the 90-degree mark. Ogallala, the hot spot right now. They were the hot spot yesterday with the state high of 103. Also made it up to 101 at McCook and Imperial. Not as hot as in the desert southwest where Death Valley yesterday made it up to 127 degrees. Oh, my. Yeah, and the hottest ever recorded in Death Valley in 1913 when they reached 134. So very close to record heat as you head into the desert southwest. Currently, it's only around the 100-degree mark as you head towards the Death Valley area. And temperatures in our area are going to be hot as we tap into some of that heat from the desert southwest. That ridge of high pressure pushing a little bit of that hot air towards our area. Also aiding in the warm-up today, a warm front lifting north through northern Nebraska. Higher humidity in the picture today, that's going to make it feel as warm as the low 100s in most of the area. Most of the day, the atmosphere is going to be captured too warm in the upper levels for thunderstorms to develop. And that cap may hold until early this evening. But once that cap breaks, rapidly developing and severe storms are possible. Currently, a slight risk for severe storms over central and northeast Nebraska and central Kansas or along and east of a line from O'Neill to Broken Bow, McCook, and Colby. Again, O'Neill, Broken Bow to McCook and Colby, along and east of that line is where we do have that higher risk for severe storms with that slight risk of thunderstorms today. Those thunderstorms expected to fire right near a dry line that's currently over western Nebraska and eastern Colorado, and we're kind of seeing some of that drier air as you head towards the Ogallala area. Thunderstorm chances quickly diminish as we head towards midnight. More thunderstorms expected along and north of a cold front for tomorrow into tomorrow night. The greater severe threat tomorrow expects to be over south and east Nebraska into north and west Kansas. Temperatures will be much cooler behind that front, especially as we head towards the weekend. We're looking at highs in central Nebraska, only around 70 for the weekend. Rain chances remain possible through Sunday. Some high pressure will return some drier and warmer conditions for early next week. Now, in our long term, the weekend cool down won't last long. Temperatures for Nebraska and Kansas start out cooler than normal early next week. Then they'll quickly warm to above normal late next week through the 4th of July. So the 4th of July looking warm right now. Below normal precipitation starts early next week in Nebraska and Kansas. But above normal rainfall in the forecast later next week through the 4th. So with that heat, you could see some moisture. Weather factors driving the markets include 
Mostly favorable conditions for Midwest crops. Tropical Storm Cindy. It has its name, Tropical Storm Cindy, bringing heavy rain and possible flooding to the Gulf Coast and the Delta. And limited rain chances for the Northern Plains. Tropical Storm Cindy does not pose much of a threat with regards to the wind, but flooding will remain a concern the next few days from the Gulf Coast north into the Tennessee Valley and also the central Appalachians. Scattered rain and thunderstorms will cross the Midwest through tomorrow and be followed by another surge of cool, dry air. Below normal temperatures will dominate from the plains to the east coast late this week into the weekend. Dryness concerns remain in key crop areas of North Dakota, especially for reproductive wheat. Rain chances fairly limited the next 10 days there. No significant hot weather, though, is expected, and that should ease the moisture requirements. The southern plains will keep seeing mostly favorable conditions for the heat for mature winter wheat and harvest over the next few days. That heat will stress, though, the corn and sorghum at times. In northeast China, rain and cooler weather early this week improved their conditions for planting and early development of crops. More rain, though, is still needed in western growing areas of northeast China. All right, and your ag weather this hour brought to you by Coolman Repair. Tropical Storm Cindy. Yep, for, yeah. Get along home, Cindy. <laughs> I, I wonder why we don't name thunderstorms. You know, we can do Huey, Dewey, Louie all at the same time. <laughs> have a big rotation. Sneezy. Which, which, you know, uh, not to give them any credence, but the Weather Channel, of course, they've gotten into the <laughs> hype of naming winter storms. Winter storms, storms yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's the next step we take here during our Ag Weather with Paul Perkins. When you need weather anytime. KRVN.com. at agriculture information on the Roll Radio Network. I'm Jesse Harding. Governor Pete Ricketts announced plans to lead a trade mission to Canada during August 7th through the 11th. Governor Ricketts will lead the mission in conjunction with the Nebraska Department of Agriculture and the Department of Economic Development. The governor said with NAFTA being renegotiated, it's important for the state to reach out. So another one of those big NAFTA partners is Canada, so we're going to go up and say thank you to our business and agricultural partners up there. We're going to meet with a variety of government leaders and really emphasize that as we go through this process of modernizing NAFTA, we want to make sure that we don't disrupt that great relationship that we have with with Canada right now because they are our number one trading partner. And of course, as our number one trading partner, we want to go up there and say thank you. In 2016, total agricultural exports from Nebraska to Canada equaled an estimated $468 million out of total agriculture export value of $5.4 billion. A nationwide program to educate consumers on the benefits and the availability of E15 is working, but it takes a lot of money. Bruce Gorder talks about one large contributor. Ron Wolfkuhl leads the Engine Corn Program for Syngenta, and he says they have made a large monetary commitment to the Prime the Pump program. With our connection with ethanol, uh, Prime the Pump is an effort uh, in which we we try to introduce uh, new consumers and new retailers to E15, and uh, Prime the Pump helps uh, help get those folks excited, uh, can help them get the right equipment in place, and uh, during this past year, uh, we've donated $340,000 to that effort, and uh, it's, uh, it's great to see the results from that. Um, as, uh, as, as of this time, uh, 97% of the gas- gasoline sold today has ethanol within that. And, uh, of course, uh, a lot of that is E10, but uh, we're excited to see the progress for D15. 
Ron also says the Enigen Corn Program is working with over 350,000 acres committed to Enigen Corn this year. On the Rural Radio Network, I'm Bruce Gorder. As part of its focus on sustainable food production, Tyson Foods has launched a broad new animal well-being initiative for chickens. The company has implemented the U.S. meat industry's most extensive third-party remote video auditing system. The company has also trained and deployed nearly 60 detective full-time animal well-being specialist. This includes at least one at every processing facility that handles live animals to work collaboratively collaboratively with the Office of Animal Well-Being and plans to ensure best-in-class training and practices. More on that can be found by visiting RollRadio.com. And Tropical Storm Cindy is bearing down on the Gulf Coast, but Brad Rippey, USDA meteorologist, says the Midwest will get moisture from a combination of Tropical Storm Cindy and another cold front. But there will be nothing for the Northern Plains region. We are going to be looking at uh, the same cold front that is going to eventually interact with this tropical system moving southward through the Midwest. So another round of showers and thunderstorms coming for the Midwest. They have certainly improved over the last week to 10 days So we have stabilized crop conditions and pasture conditions across the Midwest. More rain on the way, locally one to two inches. The bad news in all of this is that it really doesn't look like we're going to see much more additional relief for the northern plains. So spring wheat that is moving through the grain fill stage of development, I don't foresee much, if any, in the way of beneficial rainfall coming there. The only good news for the northern plains is that it will turn sharply cooler And that's been a look at agriculture information on the Roll Radio Network. I'm Jesse Harding. Cover crops and their impact on groundwater are what two Nebraska natural resources districts are getting set to look at in a new study. I'm Shaley Peters on the Rural Radio Network, and here to visit with me today about that is Russ Callen. Russ is the Assistant General Manager for the Lower Loop NRD. And Russ, why don't you just start off by talking about what exactly uh, this study is and what you guys will be looking at with it. Okay, uh, the Lower Loop Natural Resource District and the Central Platte uh, Natural Resource District are uh, doing a study to determine the impacts of groundwater due to cover crop management. Uh, the potential impacts would be to water quality and quantity. Uh, our areas have some diverse soil types uh, and cropping practices. Uh, the, the impact of cover crops to groundwater quality is fairly well documented, uh, but we don't really have a lot of documentation on what the impact is to water quantity. Uh, with the water modeling efforts and the water management that the NRDs do, uh, we're just trying to figure out what that impact is and uh, and how it uh, is affected by all the different types of cover crops. So who all is involved with this impact study, then who all will be working with it? Uh, with this project, we'll be working with uh, NRCS and uh, Extension folks uh, to try and get this information out the uh, best we can. Uh, those are the people that uh, are working with the producers every day. And we'll be focusing in that uh, Buffalo County area, uh, the area between the South Loop and, say, Wood River uh, and because we're looking at some water quantity issues there. Uh, we also you know, want to further the information as far as uh, water quality issues that uh, cover crops are, like I said, very well documented that they help water quality. Uh, we're, when you do the modeling, uh, we're not sure, again, on how that affects the quantity. 
Now, the area you've selected for this study has a wide range of soil types. Touch on how that will impact this study and what you're looking at with that. Uh, yes, like I said, we have a very diverse uh, range of soil types and, uh, and different uh, you know, conservation and cultivation practices. Uh, so we're going to try and diversify that the best we can. Uh, like I said, we only got so many so many dollars to do, uh, do the work with, so uh, we will, again, try to diversify it. Uh, the best we can. Now, studies like this can't be done without funding. What does that look like for you guys, Russ? Uh, we're looking at a couple different funding sources. Uh, uh, one, of course, would be just from the NRD budgets themselves, and then uh, through the uh, Environmental Trust and or the Water Sustainability uh, Fund that's uh, available here in Nebraska. Both great sources uh, for water conservation and uh, uh, doing these studies. So we're, we're hoping to uh, further this information with, with their help uh, through one of those sources. We've covered so much information about the study itself, but when are you guys looking to actually kick things off with this, get off the ground with it, and then how long do you think that this study will last? Uh, the, we will start applying for that funding uh, you know, either this summer and this fall, uh, hoping to be on the ground running with uh, some cooperators, uh, working with some producers as far as the the practices and the management of the cover crops for the next three years is the what the timeline of the study is. All right. Well, thanks, Russ, for all the information. Russ Callen, he is the Assistant General Manager with the Lower Loop Natural Resources District, visiting with us today about their cover crop groundwater impact study. They're hoping to get kicked off this fall with area producers uh, to conduct a four-year study to determine the impacts on groundwater due to cover crop management. I'm Shaley Peters, and you're listening to the Rural Radio Network. You're listening to Midday on the Rural Radio Network. Time to check sports with Jason Jorgensen. Hey, thanks, Derek. Well, it was a busy day for the Husker football program yesterday, especially for the middle of June. True freshman wide receiver Keyshawn Johnson Jr. will not be part of the Husker football program this fall. Johnson Jr. will take a leave of absence from the program, but the door is open for his return in January, assuming he's taking care of a few requirements. His father, Keyshawn Johnson Sr., released a statement last night announcing that he was heavily involved with this decision, along with head coach Mike Riley, and fully supportive of this move and the Nebraska football program. Earlier this summer, Johnson Jr. was cited for possession of marijuana and drug paraphernalia in his dorm room. Johnson Sr. confirmed that his son is already back in L.A. and will be working out and most likely taking some classes online or will attend a junior college this fall. Another Husker news, assistant coach Bob Elliott will now become the off-the-field defensive analyst this season, and Scott Booker has been hired to replace him as safeties and special teams coach. Coach Riley made that announcement yesterday, saying Elliott needed to make the move because of personal reasons that recently arose. Elliott joined the Nebraska staff just last winter after having served as special assistant at Notre Dame. Elliott coached safeties at Notre Dame when Bob Diaco was the Irish defensive coordinator. Booker was a special teams consultant at Nebraska this spring. College World Series, one game is on tap tonight. That is an elimination game between Florida State and LSU. That one will start at 6. Colorado Rockies won their sixth in a row, and in the process ended the Arizona Diamondbacks' seven-game winning streak and stayed a half a game ahead of the second-place L.A. Dodgers as they rallied to win it last night 4-3. to Manager Bud Black breaks down yet another come-from-behind victory from his team. We keep our poise. We keep our focus. You know, we keep the intensity throughout the game, uh, no matter what type of game it is, whether, you know, the last couple of games we've, we've fallen behind and we've bounced back. You've got to keep... You got to keep a level of headedness to this. 
to come back. The Dodgers kept pace as Corey Seager homered three times and Cody Bellinger belted his league-leading 22nd home run to highlight a 12-0 dismantling of the Mets. And Pro Football Hall of Famer Warren Sapp is donating his brain for medical research. He announced on social media that his brain will go to the Concussion Legacy Foundation after his death. The 44-year-old said in a statement that he started to feel the effects of too many hits that he took during his 13-year NFL career. Sapp says he hopes his donation can help prevent concussions and permanent brain damage for future football players. That's a look at sports. Have a great day. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network. Partly cloudy with a chance of thunderstorms through the night tonight. I'm Dave Schroeder with news. Red Willow County attorney Paul Wood has identified the victim of a vehicle bicycle accident yesterday as 10-year-old Peyton Fife from McCook. A young person on a bicycle died after being struck by a pickup in southwest Nebraska yesterday. The Nebraska State Patrol says it occurred around 1.30 yesterday, about a quarter mile southwest of McCook on Federal Avenue. A pickup driven by 37-year-old Jason Stevens of McCook was traveling westbound when it struck a bicycle driven by Fife as it was coming out of a private drive. The Nebraska State Patrol and Red Willow County Sheriff's Office is assisting in the investigation. An attorney for an inmate accused of strangling his cellmate has asked a judge to declare Nebraska's death penalty unconstitutional. Concerns over the lethal injection procedure are among the 11 arguments in a motion filed by Todd Lancaster, attorney for Patrick Schroeder. Capital punishment was repealed in 2015 but recently reinstated by voters. The move prompted a delay in Schroeder's arraignment that was set for today. Schroeder has been serving a life sentence for murder but now also faces a potential death sentence for allegedly choking cellmate Terry Berry Jr. to death in April at the Tecumseh State Prison. Lancaster says the state's death penalty is racially and geographically discriminatory. He says the decision to seek it is arbitrary because it's left to individual county attorneys. A Nebraska County Election Commissioner will serve as the state's new Deputy Secretary of State for Elections. Sarpy County Election Commissioner Wayne Baina will replace Neil Erickson, who retired last December after 22 years with the Secretary of State's office. Baina will report to Secretary of State John Gale, the state's chief elections officer, starting September 1st. Baina has served as Sarpy County Election Commissioner since 2010. His new role will include managing a Secretary of State's Elections Division and coordinating with 93 county election officials, among other duties. Nebraska's governor has declared a state of emergency for storm-damaged areas of the state. The declaration by Governor Pete Ricketts yesterday will let the state respond to local governments in the wake of storms that struck both ends of Nebraska last week. The Nebraska Emergency Management Agency has said the agency is gathering information from emergency managers about damage in more than 30 counties. The National Weather Service has reported that three tornadoes touched down in Nebraska Panhandle last week and four tornadoes hit eastern Nebraska on Friday. They were spawned by a storm that carried howling straight-line winds and blinding rain as well. We want your news, video, and photos. Tip us under the news tab at krvn.com. In the News Center, I'm Dave Schroeder.
as Kansas sets to kick off the Emergency Response Corps with the Kansas Department of Agriculture. They're looking for those who can help. For the Rural Radio Network, I'm Jesse Harding. On the phone with us from Kansas is David Hogg. He is Assistant Emergency Manager Coordinator with the Kansas Department of Agriculture. When we're talking about this core that you guys are starting up, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about the need to have something like this? Well, you know, when we look at agriculture in the state of Kansas, you know, it is our largest industry. It employs a lot of people and is really, you know, it's important culturally as well. And so we really understand the need to, to protect agriculture. And as we look at across the nation, across the world, there are a lot of threats to agriculture, whether from foreign animal disease, plant disease, even, you know, human-caused events, things like hazmat incidences, and then the natural disasters. You know, in the last two years, we've had two of the largest wildfires in state history in Kansas that have really affected the agriculture industry here. And so we look at those and we say, you know, how can we as the Department of Ag be a service to those producers, to the to the industry in the state, to really protect and and help them respond and recover to an incident. So with this Kansas Emergency Response Corps, what is this group going to look like and then be able to do? Well, you know, one of the things that we really have taken to heart is this idea that we need a multidiscipline force. We've had a volunteer vet corps in the past in Kansas, and that was a wonderful thing. But we really understand that in an incident, even if it is an animal disease outbreak, we're going to need a lot more than just veterinarians. You know, things like people in the office just to do data entry and management, people that can go out and educate the public about what's going on and what's happened, and people to train individuals that may be working on cleaning and disinfecting. Just It takes a just a huge effort to deal with one of these incidents. And so that's really one of the key aspects of this core is that we're looking for people from a variety of different backgrounds uh, with a variety of different skill sets that look at this and say, you know, I understand this is important. I understand that this is, you know, either the background, the role, the the place that I came from, or that I just love this state and want to want to be able to help. And so we're looking for again just anyone and everyone that that has that desire and that says, hey, I want to be put to work and I want to be I want to be able to serve my fellow Kansan. If someone is interested in joining the Corps and being involved, is there training that that person would go through? What would it look like for an individual? Okay, well, the first step would be to go to our website. It's agriculture.ks.gov forward slash K-A-E-R-C. And then go on there. They can fill out an application. We're just going to ask a little bit of things about their background. And then we're going to give them an opportunity to say, these are the areas where I really feel like I would be best suited or, or would be most interested in, in helping. Uh, they'll, they'll fill that out, send that to me. There's a, a memorandum of understanding and code of conduct that we will ask them to sign. And then from that point, there are a few trainings that we will ask them to complete. Those can be done a couple of different ways. They, some of them are online through FEMA. They can go online and take those. The one thing that we're going to do in particular is go out to the different areas of our state and hold sort of one-day training workshops. That way the different members of this, of this volunteer corps can get to know each other. They, they can get to know me, um, other members of KDA, and sit down and just kind of work through what would a response look like. How would volunteers be used, and what would be expected of them? Uh, but we will provide all the training that anyone would need for them uh, free of charge. Once the core is set up, if there was an emergency that happened, you would need their assistance. What would the program look like then? Okay, well, we have a dedicated incident management team here at KDA. We're, we're based in Manhattan, Kansas. And so we would kind of run the response from our office here in Manhattan. 
However, depending on the incident, and again, I'll use the example of a foreign animal disease outbreak, uh, depending on what areas may be affected, we could have field offices, uh, local emergency operations centers stood up in those locations. And so what would happen is that as our incident management team uh, sort of identified needs, we would be able to send that out to volunteers and say, hey, we need people to do you know, communications, or we need people to do cleaning and disinfection. And we can target people in those specific areas of Kansas. And that's one of the things that we really learned from past instances is that you know, people like to have locals. They're helping them. Uh, they don't really like outsiders maybe coming in, especially during uh, an emergency situation. So we want to have people that are local, that can step up, that can help. We would be directing them from here in Manhattan. Uh, they would be working with the authority of the Secretary of Agriculture, um, but they would be in their location working, helping those you know, local family farmers, those local industry partners to, again, deal with the response and then potentially the recovery efforts. I think as we've really seen this past few years with the wildfires there in Kansas, a lot of the agriculture industry and local communities have come together to help producers get back on their feet. So if someone is interested in being a part of this Kansas Emergency Response Corps through the Kansas Department of Agriculture, where can they go to get some of that information and maybe also possibly apply again? Hey, again, the easiest thing to do is to go to our website. It's agriculture.ks.gov forward slash K-A-E-R-C, or if they would rather, they can email me. It's david.hogg, H-O-G-G, at ks.gov. I'd be happy to answer any questions they might have. Um, and, and we're even looking to say, you know, if you have a big event that's going on or something else, we would love to come out and just talk about this program and why we feel that it's so important for the state of Kansas. We've been talking with David Hogg. He is the Assistant Emergency Manager Coordinator with the Kansas Department of Agriculture discussing the Kansas Emergency Response Corps, and they are looking for volunteers for that. More information about the program can be found by visiting RollRadio.com. For the Roll Radio Network, I'm Jesse Harding. Back on the Rural Radio Network, well, we saw that general commodity sell-off. Did it affect the livestock futures? Well, let's find out. Joe Teal joins us from Great Plains Commodities. Yeah, to some degree it might have. Uh, I think uh, the fact that the uh, auction today was uh, uh, kind of disappointing, I guess, uh, kind of hurt the uh, cattle today. Um, not much good news. Cutouts were sharply lower again at noon, and... Uh, uh, <clears throat> you know, cash has not been very uh, promising uh, this week so far. It seems like uh, we're just barely holding together. So uh, the problem is, though, we're discount to uh, the last cash trades and uh, that uh, we're running out of time uh, with the uh, June contract and still discount. Uh, we're, well, for that matter, we're discount across the board. The feeders acted a little bit better than the... Uh, the live cattle, I mean, we were just off slightly. As a matter of fact, we actually, after the close, we rallied just a bit uh, in the aftermarket. The uh, feeders finishing a little bit higher, mainly because of the grain being uh, down, and uh, they were a bit more oversold than the uh, than the live cattle. So, relatively quiet day. We were just b- bouncing back and forth all day long. Hogs, on the other hand, are going to finish mixed with uh, the nearbys uh, finishing uh, a little bit higher, the back end a little bit lower, seeing bull spreading continuing. Cash seemed just a little bit softer today. 
than the sharp uh, increases that we've seen lately. Cutouts were a little bit better, though, and uh, that kept the uh, hogs uh, on a firm pace higher. Thanks, Joe. Joe Teal, Great Plains Commodities. The opportunity to see where your food comes from is something that all people really want to experience and the products that they are working with, and that's exactly what one trade team is doing right now in the United States. For the Rural Radio Network, I'm Jesse Harding. On the phone with us is Gerald Diaz. He is the Deputy Regional Director of U.S. Wheat Associates based out of South Africa. They have a trade team here in Nebraska and Kansas this week. And Gerald, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and some of the work that you are able to do through U.S. Wheat Associates and why you are based in South Africa. We're basically a market development organization. We operate on a cooperative agreement with U.S. Department of Agriculture and it's to promote American wheat production overseas markets. Our office in Cape Town, South Africa, we're responsible for 36 countries in Sub-Saharan Africa. This thing that we do, um, what we are right now is one of our activities where we bring in users, flour millers, bakers, and so on, over to the United States to talk to wheat producers, get an idea of the volume, uh, the quality aspects, the milling aspects, the baking aspects, protein levels, and just to put them in touch with the, uh, with the producers, get an idea of, you know, what's going to be available to the market, you know, coming into Nigeria, South Africa over the next year or so. When it comes to this trade team that is currently in Nebraska is going to be heading down to Kansas as well. What is the trade team delegates made up of the industry types and where are they from? They're all flower millers, chief executives, CEOs, uh, production managers, quality control executives, grain procurement as well to people, but all of them are flower millers. Can you give us a rundown of what your trip looks like this time around? We'll be going down to Kansas this afternoon, then from Kansas to Oklahoma. Oklahoma, North Dakota, finishing up in Minnesota to look at the spring wheat area. But uh, Nigeria, for one, is, is the number one importer of hard red winter wheat for the last seven years globally, number one importer. And uh, they're also Nigeria and South Africa are also the number one global importers of hard white wheat. So we're very big customers of the, the wheat that you grow here in um, Nebraska and down in Kansas. For last year's crop, there was a lot of concerns about the protein issues and that being an issue for millers and bakers. Why is that important to have that high protein number? Well, for instance, the type of bread that you use in South Africa is what we call a high-volume bread. So you need a higher protein to get that volume. It's probably about uh, maybe one and a half up to two times the size of a typical American loaf. We have a high, high volume loaf, and you need those high protein levels. That's why when, when you don't have the protein, you just don't get that loaf, that, that loaf size, and that, that's a concern for the bakers and for the consumers. What are some of those things that they really take home with them when the delegation goes back that they may or may not have learned or knew ahead of time? Well, one of the gentlemen we met with um, U.S. Department of Agriculture researchers yesterday in the grain grading techniques that are used to make sure that the millers over in Africa get the wheat that they want. But that's a very high concern because if you don't correctly specify the type of wheat, then you don't get the type of wheat. So they were very quite pleased with the the, 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 um, the efforts that USDA puts in grain grading. And so, um, yeah, basically just the whole food chain, uh, it, it really makes a difference when you put the end user, which is the flour millers, in touch with the producers, you know, and um, talk to them, talk about the crop, like you said, protein levels, uh, moisture content, and some of the other milling aspects. 
We've been talking with Gerald Diaz. He is the Deputy Regional Director of U.S. Weed Associates based out of South Africa, who is helping to host a Nigerian and South African trade team here in the United States looking at U.S. wheat. For the Rural Radio Network, I'm Jesse Harding. A lot of red seen on the screen today. Dewey Nelson on the Rural Radio Network. And we're joined by Craig Turner of Daniel's Ag Marketing in Chicago. A tough day on the wheat trade and on the soybean front as well, Craig. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the spring wheat has been up so much. I mean, you look at a, a daily chart, and it just keeps on charging higher. Uh, we are still in an uptrend, but there's always expectations of some kind of a correction, some kind of a pullback. I think that's what we're seeing right now in the spring wheat. Unfortunately, though, for the soybeans, you know, we're, we're again in that downtrend and coming, you know, maybe coming back down to the support levels in November around that 915 to 920 area. The recent weather and the forecast have had mild temperatures in the forecast, and with that tropical storm Cindy coming through, there was some concern it could have crop damage, but most likely it's just going to bring moisture, you know, during a time where, uh, you know, most crops could use some rain. Overall, the corn was maybe a follower to the downside since it tried to stay above uh, neutral for a while. Yeah, it did. You know, corn was the big fighter today. While uh, wheat was selling off and so was soybeans, it hung in there. You know, we do talk to a lot of farmers and a lot of analysts, and there is a general consensus that the USDA is going to lower yields on corn, and, and now we're talking about how much. So, you know, is it going to be a couple of bushels, four, you know, four bushels on the yield? And all of a sudden, instead of having a 2.1 billion carryout for new crop, we could be at 1.8 or 1.9, and that would be considered supportive of corn around these prices. Where are we at for support level on that new crop December contract? So we're gonna we're looking at a, an area between 375 and 380, and that's based on the USDA lowering the bushels a couple of, the yield a couple of bushels, and us having a, a carryout of about 1.8. Now, let's go to the plus side and resistance uh, on that December contract. Yeah, so here's the thing. 405, that 405, 408 ran into uh, some pretty big resistance. We see a lot of selling coming into the market. If we do get weather issues, um, and, you know, let's say the USDA says we have a one... Oh, 165 yield. We lose a half a million to a million bushels on the, the June 30th report. We get some, you know, hot weather at the end of June or into July. Maybe we can come back up to 420. But for now, we're thinking 380 to about 405 is really our range. Thanks for the comments, Craig. Craig Turner, Daniel Zag Marketing in Chicago. Go to danielzagmarketing.com. As we mentioned, corn one and a half or one and a quarter to one and a half lower. Soybeans nine to eleven lower and near the lows of the day. Kansas City wheat six and a half to seven lower. Chicago wheat down eight. I'm Dewey Nelson.